Good morning. Good morning. At this time, I want to be able to dismiss the elementary school kids to head down to their class. Accurate information for this way of life. 
And that was probably my biggest takeaway from the actual walk that Google was right not to necessarily be overconfident. Walking somewhere brings in a ton of unknowns. You're far more vulnerable. So many things can affect your, your travel, demands, your engagement. For instance, every time I pass someone, I had to decide whether I was going to interact with them. Was I going to say hi or, or grunt? I did a couple grunts. Uh, was I going to pretend to look at my, my flip phone like you could do something? Um, <laughs> in a car, I never had to make decisions like that. There, you know, am I going to interact with this car? That would be weird. But, but walking speed just didn't offer that luxury. It was, it was inherently relational. In a similar way, uh, walking to church it forced me to engage Amelia, my wife, in more intentional ways. I had to explain to her that I was voluntarily not going to use my car so that I could instead walk five miles to church one morning, which means she was going to involuntarily solo parent three kids for a little bit longer than usual. It didn't go over well at first. I believe we ended the conversation with me saying, well, fine, but on the way home from church, you can drop me off at the nail salon and I'm happy to walk home. <laughs> Basically, what I realized is, is not taking the path of least resistance, it required that I ask for help. It, it didn't allow me to pretend that I was self-sufficient. The whole experience felt like trying to drive at a minimum speed around 285. It, it felt far more dangerous to go slower than if I was going like 80, right? Uh, in the end, the more our pace of life moves at God's speed, the more dynamic and unpredictable it becomes. And in a broken world, that is scary a lot of times. That leads us to want to speed up life as a protective measure. And it's in this context that we find our second temptation to a three-mile-per-hour faith. Begins in Matthew 4, verse 5. Listen for God's word for each of us today. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It's also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the beginning, I, I said we're calling this the temptation to protect. Which probably seems odd, uh, now that you've heard the scriptures, that the devil is inviting uh, Jesus to jump off a building. Uh, doesn't seem like the most protective move. Honestly, it doesn't even seem that tempting. It's, I, this is the mustard sandwich of temptations. It's like, I'm not really that interested. Thank you. It, it sounds like scripture is warning us against bad intention trust falls or something. I was really proud of that line. <laughs> Bad intention, trust falls. <laughs> no. Well, the devil 
is to be, uh, but I don't think that's what it is. I think what the devil is inviting Jesus to do is to be less relational for the sake of uh, his own safety. To speed up God's story. Skip all the mess in the middle and fast forward to resurrection. The devil says, don't engage this world at a humane pace, a walking pace with your creation. You'll be vulnerable. You'll, you'll open your life to being wounded in ways that aren't necessary. You're God. You're going to be lifted up in the end anyway, Jesus. We both know that's how the story ends. So why don't you just go ahead and get it done now without any pain that comes with trying to walk with people. Love. Throw yourself off the temple and let the angels swoop in to catch you. Do that and you won't even need to make disciples, let alone suffer on the cross, because if someone isn't convinced you're God when they see heavenly angels swoop in and then catch you midair, nothing's going to convince them. You'll be fine. You've been, it's on them at that point. And I know it sounds over the top, but, but this is our temptation. And God-paced life opens us to need others. To be disappointed by others. And to, in turn, disappoint them. To have to forgive and ask for forgiveness. And when we encounter those kinds of moments, what we often want to do instead is figure out a way to opt out. Jump to the raising up part without having to go on the journey. The temptation is to daily choose which parts of the way of Jesus make us feel safe and then figure out how that can be good enough. To cheapen faith so we won't continually need grace or have to show it to others in community. And if we can get to that moment and for a second we think that might be true, that is all that the devil wants. We're not being tempted to give up every part of faith. All sin needs to win is for us to give up some part of faith. Just a So what does this look like? What does it look like in the, I'm probably not going to jump off a temple, but this is still a temptation in my life uh, sort of way? Well, it's a little dangerous to specifically say uh, what it looks like for you, but I'll, I can share a couple of spots that is true for me, or has been. I remember when our, when our church decided to move our Sunday gathering from Grant Park uh, up here to Sandy Springs. We tried to be prayerful about it, tried to be faithful about it, and when we announced it, we, we said that we, we felt the Lord was calling us into a new season. But afterwards, someone came up to me and said, I didn't appreciate you using that dramatic language. Saying we were called. I don't feel called. And now if I express it, it sounds like I'm going against the Holy Spirit or something. You're not leaving any room to communally process this. You're protecting yourself from disagreement 
or being called out for bad motives by hiding behind religious language. I did not have a good response to him. Do you do that, though? Do you claim the mysteries of faith to justify how you feel? To keep your desires from being challenged in community? Another one, I, I truly, I believe it's true about me, I wish the systematic injustices of this world that they did not exist. But I've become, as Steve sort of mentioned, I've become comfortable being overwhelmed by them. Protected by false humility that I shouldn't pretend I'm anyone's savior and these problems are so big that only a savior can solve. And it's a fact that feels all the more true because I'm not actually friends. I'm not actually in community with anyone who's systematically oppressed. And so I can just kind of move along. What about you? Do you duck the uncomfortable, powerful ways we are called and invited to be the hands and feet of Jesus by hiding behind the truth that Jesus is the one who saves? I want my kids to be people who pray. Truly want it. But I don't often have the patience or the grace to actually teach them how to pray. And I, I honestly don't want to be so bold that it's obvious when I fail. When they say I'm not interested and then I get defensive and all of a sudden they're in timeout because they won't pray or something like that. And so I truly, I just don't do it. I just hope it. What about you? Do you ever find yourself believing sincere desires are as good as living faithfully? And finally, I have never been in a fight with my wife where I am not, sometimes it's very small, but I've never been in a fight with my wife where I'm not in some ways right. <laughs> right? Just a little. Sometimes it's like, like well, one group, but it's something. I am in some ways right. And that truth, that fact, convinces me being understood is the most important thing. What about you? Do you huddle around the safety of righteousness instead of engaging people with costly grace? And all these things, what I hope you see is the common theme is I grab hold of some kernel of truth. Something that is really true, but I do it at the expense of relationally stepping into the full mystery of faith. But that's not Jesus. In our passage, the Lord doesn't deny the devil speaks the truth. The devil quotes scripture. But Jesus refuses to pretend it's the whole truth. Jesus says, yes, I will be raised up. But I also will not put the Lord to the test. I'll be patient. I'll not jump over the pain that might come on the journey of resurrection. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we don't latch on to the most convenient parts of the gospel. As disciples, 
We never decide what is faithful before any faith has been required. Discipleship is daily setting out in the direction of God's story of grace and trusting the Lord will bring his promises through to fruition through that journey. Stanley Howell he has a description of marriage that I often quote in premarital counseling, but I think it, it fits really well with, with what we're talking about today. He says, and I'm quoting here, too often ministers ask an engaged couple if they love each other. What a stupid question. What do they know about love? A Christian marriage isn't about knowing you're in love. Christian marriage gives you the practice of fidelity over a lifetime in which you can look back upon the marriage and see sacrifice, pain, and reconciliation and not ask, were we in love, but be able to proclaim that is what love looks like. And friends, I believe that is a faithful approach in every part of life. That's how we're to engage our church, our work, our world. We don't figure out the end of the story and then find the perfect person or the perfect community or job and jump off, pretend like we've arrived. By God's grace, we recognize who we are and where we're going, and we do not put the Lord to the test. Instead, we take one step forward at a time, attempting to love God and neighbor, trusting wherever that takes us, we will look back and be able to say, that's what it looks like to be raised up, for the Lord is with us. Back when I was teaching that, uh, teaching high school and middle school, I, I probably had a, a bit too much pride around the belief that if it, if it came down to it, a, a kid is going to be honest with me. I, I engaged students in a way, and I felt like I earned their respect in a certain, in a certain way that, uh, that a kid wasn't going to out and out defy me, like they might another teacher. But we had an understanding. One year I was, I was helping out on a retreat, and this eighth grader did some Something like something dumb that only an eighth grader would do. I, I, I think he stole his leader's phone in the middle of like a session. And after a couple failed attempts uh, by another teacher to get him to confess, I went in and I was very confident. Uh, and I do my whole thing. Like I don't try to like yell at him. I'm, I'm leveling with him. I shot it to him straight. I kind of treated him with a certain level of respect. And then I finally asked him. I said. Did you take the phone? The kid looked me in the eye and said, No, I didn't. So I'm like pretty confident that he's not going to lie to me like that. So I went back out and I told my fellow teachers, I honestly think he might not have taken it. Well, fast forward 30 minutes later, the kid finally comes out of his little holding cell uh, <laughs> and, he, and he hands uh, my colleague the phone. Righteous anger I felt in that moment, fueled by this mixture of embarrassment and judgment. I was merciless. 
in my thoughts. <laughs> I had done my one jump off the temple moment. I had shot at him straight, giving him a chance to step out in grace and be good, and, and he didn't take it, so that was the end of the story for me and this dude. Uh, if he didn't join me there, he was, he was dead to me, and I let him know that fact with my eyes every time I saw him in the halls in the weeks after that. Just staring at him. <laughs> a few months later, by my habit since I found out that that kid's father, the father who came and picked him up earlier uh, from the retreat, had been at that time and still was fighting a rather vicious form of cancer. And had I known that, I, I'm not saying this student would have stayed on the retreat. Or what he did would have all of a sudden been less bad. But it did make me long to have a faith that wasn't in such a rush to protect my ego, my feelings. That could have sat with that kid even after betrayal and loved him well. Because he needed some love. But God's grace is new every morning. Amen? Amen. See what everyone's new today. New for you. And one morning, not every morning is heaven, one morning I believe that. And so I'm at homeroom and I, and I lean in, swallow my pride, and I send the kid a little email saying I heard about his dad. I'm sorry, I can't imagine how that makes that felt, that feels, what he's going through. And I'm praying for him. And the next morning he came up to me and again, this incredibly awkward way that an only an eighth grader could, but it's, it's kind of like, Got tears in his eyes and says, Mr. Nitzel, I got your email. That meant a lot. I really appreciate it. Mm. That's one of the most meaningful moments of my time as a teacher. A little glimpse of who Jesus is inviting me to be. And I look back and I say with confidence, that's what it looks like to be raised up. That's the good news of Jesus. Where have you clung to partial truth to protect yourself from the difficult but life-giving journey of God's whole story? Because in doing so, we might have risen above certain difficulties in this world, but we're missing out on being with Jesus. Friends, a life that avoids needing to show grace is a life that misses out on grace. And as hard as it is to live into, as much pain as it can cause, I believe if we slow down enough to be uh, confronted with this way of Jesus, if we refuse the protection of partial truth, we will find a life that lets us discover who we were meant to be. We'll be able to look back on our experiences and say, thanks be to God for this life of grace that has been given to me. Amen. We pray with you. Jesus, 
It's not that we are off the reservation, it's that life is hard and scary. And so, so often, we cling to some partial truth, and yet your whole truth is grace all the way down. And we're missing out on that. Choosing partial life instead of full life, and so, Lord, I pray that we might slow down not duck from the relational difficulties, but claim you as Savior, knowing you are with us, and we might look back on the difficulties and even failures of life and see that you have been at work and that we can claim a raised up life thanks to you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.